News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you have noticed that streaming costs appear to be rising, you are not alone. That is, in fact, happening, and it's a trend that is sticking around. Many experts predicting consumers will be facing higher subscription prices, and that will continue. But why? What is causing this surge in streaming prices? Vincent Georgi is an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Windsor's Odette School of Business, also executive director of the Windsor International Film Festival. Vincent, thank you so much for being with us. Jill, good morning. It's a pleasure. Good morning. I think a lot of people have probably noticed, and maybe as we go and find more streaming services, that the price is increasing. Is it demand or what is it that's causing this? Yeah, there's a couple of factors at play. The first piece is there's actually uh, too many competitors in this space. Uh, This marketplace is really, really full. Ultimately, the pie that everyone's trying to get a slice of uh, has too many people eating off of it. So because of that, you know, the slices of the pie are pretty thin. So they're looking to make as much, you know, revenue as possible, considering the market basically hasn't shaken out yet. You know, not enough competitors have left uh, this space. That's one thing. The second piece is over the past 10 years, we've not just seen you know, different streaming platforms pop up, you know, left, right, and center, but a lot of them making some very expensive acquisitions of films and TV shows or very, very expensive investments in production, uh, and even, you know, getting into awards campaigns and this type of stuff. So you've got a sector that has been consistently actually overspending, and you've got too many competitors in the sector, so there's not enough profit to be made. So this is why there, there's, uh, there's, there's a squeeze here. Is it also that people got kind of brought into this or, or were, were joining these streaming services, subscribing to them at lower prices and the idea of then you become used to it and you're watching shows. So even if the price goes up, you're already kind of sucked in and you want to keep it. So you're going to pay more and they know that. Yeah, Jill, very, very much. I mean, the, the strategy with all of these platforms, you know, whether you're looking at a Netflix or a Crave or a Hulu or an Amazon Prime or what have you, Disney Plus, on and on, is, of course, have introductory pricing. So, you know, free month or, you know, start off for a couple of dollars, these types of things. And you continue on. And because these are things that are attached to everyone's credit card, you know, depending how judiciously your, your credit card statements or what have you, you kind of forget what you've subscribed to or, or things sort of carry on over time. And that's where it sort of creeped up with people of realizing, one, the frequency they're using some platforms versus others. You might be on something, you know, often, another one, not not very much. But sort of the out-of-sight, out-of-mind quality, I think really up to now, but now that's become really much more of a social conversation. I think people are taking a closer look at the credit card bills. The average Canadian consumers actually have five five subscriptions to streamers per, per household. Now, you can be looking at about $100 a month just on, on streaming services, and I think people are taking a closer look at their bill. Right, because when it first started, it almost seemed like a less expensive option or a way where, where yes. maybe you could actually save some money. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, oh, well, you know, I can cut my cable because I'm getting this one subscription for $9.99, what have you. But as prices went up and then you started adding platforms because their content strategy was, you know, everyone had the latest hot film or the latest hot series, but they weren't all, of course, on one platform. So you, you, you sort of get sucked into this idea of, okay, well, I've got my Netflix account, but oh, no, that major new film is now over on Amazon or oh, that, that hot new series is over on you know Disney+. Plus. And then you start 
adding and adding. And then those introductory prices go away and it's no longer, you know, a couple of dollars a month. It starts going up and up. And there's nothing wrong with the streaming platforms overall. They're, 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 they're good at what they do. But the problem is, I think, big picture is that it, it's difficult to really see that households are actually using all the platforms that they subscribe to, when you look at some of the data on usage rates or what have you, um, there tends to, at least one out of five of those, those subscriptions that we're seeing in households, one account is actually dormant. Hmm. So, and so they're still paying for it, but just not using yeah. it. Huh. Exactly right. Exactly. These, are, these are turning into sort of those terrible gym memberships that everyone gets in January. And, and by March, you've forgotten about them, but they're still being tacked on your credit card bill. Which seems a bit strange when we're talking about uh, so many things costing more and people uh, looking to stretch those dollars, whether you're at the grocery store or paying for streaming services. That I mean, it's not as though uh, the gym membership, I know uh, in, the, in the past too, they can really suck you in and it can be difficult to get out of the membership. But it's not, unless I'm missing something, it's not that difficult difficult to cancel a streaming service. No, they, they are very, very easy, actually. I mean, absolutely, the barriers to exit are very, very low. It's, 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 it's quite simple in that way. It's a question of the effort to do so. I think part of it, too, is the awareness of what are you subscribing to, how many of them are still on your credit card, and, and what's your usage. You know, it's something that, you know, if you're watching, you know, binging a series, as an example, on Amazon Prime, you might have been using that account actually very heavily over a period of time and then dropped off. So it's a question of do you need to keep the account going or not, because there's, 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 there are very low barriers to exit and barriers to entry. You can resubscribe in a heartbeat, and there's, there's no real penalty in either direction. Um, so I, 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 I wonder if we're going to start going into a period where people are subscribing and ending subscriptions more of an up-and-down fashion, as opposed to just sustaining all these subscriptions with some, clearly, that, that you're no longer using. Hmm. What about how the services are changing in that? And I know if you go back way, way back when people will remember first signing onto Netflix and it wasn't that expensive, but it was just what the one package and you got the, the subscription and you got access to that. Do you see things changing as far as now there will be different tiers and that this one has ads, this one doesn't, and you'll people might be willing to pay more for not as many ads or more for a different type of service? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. I mean, historically, I mean, since the advent of, of television advertising, we've been paying for so-called free TV with our eyeballs. You know, for a 22-minute sitcom, we pay with eight minutes of advertising and watching. That's how that model works. And it's fine. That's, that's just how that's structured. So we can definitely expect some different tiered pricing with our streamers in terms of advertising versus no advertising. I can also imagine, too, a release strategy of a hot new film or hot new TV series of members of the top tier will get it, you know, a week early. Those types of models, you'll definitely look at some premium rewarding for premium costs. And I would think, too, that that might lead people to, I mean, unless you just don't care. And like you said, you're not really paying attention to your credit card bill. That could lead people to choose their favorites. If you're going to put all your money into one streaming service, be a top tiered client and get those perks rather than kind of sprinkling it out over a bunch of different ones. That's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. I, I think we're going to see some consolidation on the consumer side of picking and choosing early where their best efforts and interests are. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's the same platform, even over the same year, you know, they, they, that can go up and down. Um, but the, the other piece, too, that, that this sector needs very, very badly when the price hasn't happened already is we need far, far more uh, consolidation and compression here. Um, there are simply too many competitors. Everyone's in the streaming game, and we've not seen people 
exit. Um, you know, so so ultimately, with too many competitors, it's sort of like saying you know you've got twenty five different pizza shops on one street. It's not tenable. We need less of them. Some of them have to close, or some of them have to buy each other out. But we we need less of them overall, and we need some consolidation here. Interesting. We don't often hear about that. Usually it's we want more choice and we want more options out there, not less. But do you think that will happen then naturally as people start shifting away from certain streaming services and go to others? If it it no longer becomes a model that works for them, will they just kind of naturally go away or they'll try and stay and, and we'll see this many in the market? I, you know what? I expected the consolidation to happen a couple of years ago, and it hasn't, so I was wrong on that. What I would say is, because the slices of pie are thinner and thinner, I think you're going to get to a point where you're going to have a conglomerate or a major investor work with one of the streamers to simply buy up a couple of the other ones. People have, a couple of the competitors have to exit this market. There's simply too many of them, and that consolidation has to happen. I thought it would have it would have happened about two years ago. It, it didn't, but this market is prime for uh, some consolidation. I think there, there can be some, some definite uh, acquisitions of, of some of these streamers to sort of shake this up a little bit. It's going to be needed because the profit margins just aren't there. What was that? What will that mean though for consumers? Won't that be not necessarily a good thing, in that they then hold the cards and can set prices even higher? Yeah, they, they potentially can. That's absolutely true. It would mean potentially less subscriptions. In that, you know, there's a couple of streamers that disappear that you subscribe to, so you can just subscribe to, you know, one that you already have. Um, it could mean a little bit. Um, more choice if there's a bit more consolidation. And it's funny, it seems counterintuitive, but there could be a bit more choice because if they're making that much more money, they might be able to acquire that many more different uh, films and, and TV series. I think that, that's an opportunity. Um, we'll see. I'd love to see how it plays out, but it, it's, this is a very surprising industry that has not shaken out yet because the, there's, there's been too many competitors for at least five years and we all expected a few to depart the market. It hasn't happened yet. It's a bit slow, but it, it, it actually has to head in that direction. We will uh, certainly be watching to see what happens next. Vincent Georgie, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Jill, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, that music means it must be Friday and time to get the view from Victoria. Checking in once again with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Rob, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Such a, a great intro on Friday mornings. So we have lots to talk about as well. And starting off with something the Premier is doing. I'm hearing from British Columbians every day that are being crushed by the costs of daily life. And uh, one of those big impacts that they're seeing is ever escalating interest rates. So that was David Eby speaking yesterday when he was being asked about this letter that he wrote to the governor of the Bank of Canada. A pretty unique letter. He is the first premier to write to the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, in this case, arguing that uh, the 10 rate hikes since last March and a rate of 5% for interest Uh, which is now the highest in 22 years, is enough. Stop it, said the Premier. Next week, when you think about it again, don't raise the rates anymore. It's having devastating consequences. People are not just feeling it on mortgages, but credit cards and car loans and lines of credit. uh, And it's hurting affordability uh, in BC. Also, he points out undermining BC's home building efforts to, to build more supply because the high cost of financing is causing some developers and home builders to pause their projects or even cancel them outright. So I think there's different ways you can look at this. There's, there's a 
bit of a populist touch here that we would more associate with John Horgan than the lawyerly David Eby uh, that we have come to know, uh, and the first premier to take on the Bank of Canada like this. Ironically, the only other politician who has written to the bank governor before is federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev, who wrote uh, that he wanted the governor to to quit. <laughs> and David Eby isn't writing that. Ironically, also, this is a double irony, uh, Eby and Polyev's uh, housing policies are very, very similar. They call on penalizing municipalities that slow down building and and giving cash to those who speed it up. And they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. So maybe maybe a little bit more in common between the two of them and their playbook than the New Democrats here would be comfortable admitting out loud. But uh, that that's the company that the Premier is in right now. Yeah, certainly uh, some similarities uh, there. Uh, what about the, the letter, though? And, and I think his concerns, I'm sure a lot of people have those concerns, but is it appropriate for a Premier, an elected official, to be writing and uh, suggesting how the bank... Uh, Governor, how Governor uh, Tiff Macklin should be doing his job. Yeah, there's two ways to look at that. I mean, the Bank of Canada is independent and it is supposed to be free from premiers and prime ministers getting in there and with their sticky little fingers and fiddling with economic policy. So that question went to David Eby and he said, look, like the governor is independent, but he's also not insulated from the reality of the world. And I'm just trying to tell him the reality of British Columbians. And if he considers that for one second, uh, then my mission is done. I've reached out to the Bank of Canada for comment. They had none. It's not clear if they even read the letter uh, or not, but uh, that that's one way to look at it. The other is, you know, and BC United, uh, the opposition party, put this out yesterday and said, this letter is an empty gesture and hypocritical because complaining about affordability uh, when you're the premier of the province who had just had $8 billion to spend on affordability and has direct control over more programs and rebates and things that could be doing on affordability, and you're just sort of pointing the finger upwards at the Bank of Canada, is is deflection. And the housing crunch, I mean, it was the, <laughs> it was the New Democrats in 2017 that promised to build more than 114,000 new housing units, a minuscule amount of which has actually been built. So, you know, to blame the Bank of Canada on that as well is is passing the buck upwards. That's the argument from the BC United Party. And we do see premiers and politicians at all level, uh, a frequent tactic. You know, you if you're in trouble or you can't solve a problem, you go to the federal government, you punch them in the face, and then you run away and you hope that the deflection is enough for people to get confused and, and not um, put all the blame on you. And so the, the premier can't control uh, inflation and he can't control interest rates, but he could be doing more programs to, uh, you know, solve the problems that he is uh, the the problems of those that he's he's blaming the Bank of Canada for. Right. And even if you look at if he's talking about housing and building and the problems with that, sure, inflation has a big part in that. But so does the provincial government, civic governments. And we talk about the costs and the added costs into housing, which he has direct control over from a provincial level rather than writing letters and asking other people to change things. He does. And we're expecting housing legislation this fall that will sort of flesh out the idea of the, the municipalities on this target list who might get penalized and uh, whatever. But the, the impacts of that, uh, if it works, will take years, potentially. And this is uh, part of the problem that the premier faces on some of the big files, healthcare, uh, you know, housing, uh, the public safety. Sometimes the, the changes that you are making take a long time to develop and then even a longer time to show and in the meantime, you got to find ways to convince the public you're still being active. 
And so when we talk about public safety, the premier, you know, picked a fight with Ottawa on that one too, arguing they needed to change a particular bill uh, and and taking that. Uh, and on healthcare, you know, all the premiers picked a fight with Ottawa on money and the funding formula for healthcare. As if that was going to solve it, it hasn't solved it. Uh, here we are. So. Yeah, the, the, the real kind of buck stops probably at the provincial government for what it's choosing to do every day on affordability and housing and or not doing and the extent to which it's blaming other governments uh, for the problem. Let's pause right there. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about BC ferries, what passengers can expect for this busy Labor Day long weekend. Very frustrating. We come from the Okanagan, right? You know, um My friend here tried to make reservations and couldn't get reservations. All right, that was a ferry passenger in the lineup yesterday uh, speaking with Global News. And as you just heard on the traffic report, very busy already at the ferry terminals. Rob, BC Ferries, though, says it is ready for this long weekend and doing the best it can. Well, it's ready in the sense that it's telling you, and the CEO, Nicholas Jimenez, said yesterday, if you don't have a reservation, and this is his exact quote, you will find it a challenging experience, which I think is the understatement of the year. And you just heard in the traffic report there that if you don't have a reservation, you're going to be sitting on your duff uh, until four o'clock this afternoon to try and get on a ferry, if that. So yeah, they're ready, but you know, they're ready within a system which is crumbling due to the demand here. They have a big ship that's still out of service, that coastal renaissance. It's on the Duke Point, Sawasan route. Uh, it's sort of rippled through the the uh, service now because it will be out until mid-October. So there's other sailings canceled on other routes. And basically the ferry corporation, again, saying it's ready, urging you to walk on. Now, we know from previous weekends, if you try to walk on, um, you may discover that the parking lot is full so you're going to have to take that into consideration. You arrive and there's nowhere to park your car. Uh, so you're going to have to try and take transit there, which uh, is a journey uh, because these ferry terminals, which we built many, many years ago, are in the equivalent of nowhere at the outer ends of Victoria and uh, Metro Vancouver. So, yeah, they're ready to go within the confines of what they have, which is a very difficult experience for people on the fourth busiest uh, weekend of the year for BC Ferries. Now, I'm talking about the coastal renaissance being out of service. As we know, it's being fixed. It's going to be a while until it's back in. Is that really the, the biggest problem or is it kind of a, a whole bunch of different things and this is adding to it, having that one vessel out? Yeah, it's. I mean, we would be in the same situation if the vessel was in. We'd just be talking about it differently, that there's too much people, too many people and not enough ferries, which is the supply and demand issue that the CEO has said. Uh, and so, yes, the coastal renaissance uh, makes the situation worse. And uh, again, it's easy to sort of pin it on it. But if you didn't have a reservation and that ship was still in service, you would be uh, sitting there in the line for many, many sailings on this long weekend, too. And so we, you know, are heading into a place this fall where people get to consult with BC Ferries on what they want to see the future of this corporation be. You're going to get a lot of um, consultation responses that are just something along the lines of, I just want a ferry system that works. <laughs> um, but to get there is a very, very complicated um, you know, series of investments and terminals and big ships and larger ships and more ships. And so um, this is the reality we are in for BC Ferries for the 
foreseeable few years, I think, on on busy, busy long weekends. And I would imagine for this long weekend, too. And like you said, even though Ferries has said, you know, we're we're hoping for the best. We have these these plans in place. We're ready for the weekend. It, it really is, I, I think, too, fingers crossed, because if anything goes wrong with any of the boats that are in play right now, if anything breaks down or, or there's a delay because of that, it's going to throw things into chaos again. Yeah, they're out of ships. So if anything goes wrong, there's no help coming. Uh, you are going to work within the system that you can if a ferry is late for some reason. And often it's outside of their control, a medical emergency, a, a vehicle that's stalled or something like that. It ripples again through the entire day. Uh, we're trying to get that back on time, pushes people back, pushes reservations back outside of their windows, makes things complicated. It, it is a system that is operating at, uh, at its maximum. It is stretched, as the CEO says. It is there is no room for error anymore, and um, it's struggling. And yeah, the, there could be something that happens this weekend. The website could go down again. The, the reservation system could go down, and it doesn't take very much to plunge people into gigantic lines and frustration. But that's living on the edge <laughs> when it comes to BC ferries, which is again where we're going to be for a little while. And, and Rob, also, I know we're focused a lot on the long weekends, but uh, I'm sure people that live on the Sunshine Coast or visit the Sunshine Coast are also going to be concerned that uh, starting September 5th, there are going to be a lot of cancellations there as well. So certainly not uh, smooth sailing after the long weekend. Yeah, 60 extra sailings to that Horseshoe Bay to Langdale and then the Horseshoe Bay to Departure Bay sailings, again, because of the coastal renaissance, which will be out of service um, for some time. Uh that is, again, a function of there's no other ships available to pick up those sailings, according to BC Ferries. And so you just you just literally cannot do them. And the hope is that the coastal renaissance is not um, broken to a larger extent. There's, you know, BC Ferries trying to figure out how to fix the engine problems and where to send them. And the other coastal ships are not lemons. And BC Ferries yesterday defending them, saying, yeah, they've, the Coastal Celebration broke down on the Victoria to uh, Sawasan route, but uh, like the rest of the coastal ships seem okay. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not an expert on that, but we'll have to go with BC Ferries saying we, they, didn't, they didn't build a bunch of, you know, uh, lemon ships. But uh, every time one of them goes out, again, you have that ripple effect. So this Horseshoe Bay to Langdale uh, problem in, in September and into October is a function of that. All right. Well, again, fingers crossed as we get through this very, very busy weekend on the ferries. Rob, thank you so much. Simi is back on Monday, but thanks so much. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, great chatting with you too, Jill. We'll talk to you later. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for our weekly check-in with Reggie Cicchini, who is Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, great to, to chat with you again on this Friday morning. Good morning. Lots to get to. Let's start with the storm that hit Florida and the fallout from that. Yeah, I mean, look, this was a big storm. Uh, This was a storm that rapidly intensified over what have become incredibly warm, historically warm waters over the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, And it followed a path that was remarkable compared to hurricanes we've seen in the past in that uh, it didn't veer. It kind of stayed within that cone of uncertainty. And because of that, it ended up making landfall in an area of Florida populated but not heavily populated 
But nonetheless, it still brought with it winds that were in excess of 200 kilometers an hour. There was a storm surge that was near historic in Florida's uh, Big Bend region. Uh, It continued through the U.S. southeast. It's back over the Atlantic right now, possibly becoming a storm again. But from North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, uh, Georgia and Florida, uh, there's a real risk here that the price tag could be somewhere between 10 and 20 billion dollars. But with that, with the damage, with the livelihoods that were upended, there appear to have only been three deaths reported from the storm. And I understand the president, uh, Joe Biden, is traveling there because uh, one of the issues now also is additional funding and trying to get funding to pay for this. Yeah, I mean, look, the president was just in Maui a couple of weeks ago to see uh, the results of, of, of a change in climate with the fires that were there. He's now set to tour uh, parts of Florida uh, on Saturday. And it comes, you're right, as he puts a big request into Congress saying, look, we need more money for FEMA. Uh, FEMA has said in recent weeks that they only have about $3 billion U.S. left in their uh, disaster relief fund. And they say that will carry them through September. Hurricane season lasts through November, and there's no telling when another um, you know, climate crisis could impact the U.S. So he's asking Congress to kick in more money. But there is pushback, Jill, because there are some Republicans who say, look, you requested money for FEMA, but it has a, a Ukraine funding rider attached to it. And there are there are some people that are pushing back, saying, look, split the two. We'll give you money. Otherwise, we may not give you any more money. Uh, And that puts a real, you know, potential bullseye on the backs of Americans who may find themselves in harm's way if another climate crisis strikes. Hmm. Do you think that there there is potential then they will split and get it so that those who are opposed or that pushback, uh, they will approve it? I mean, look, the president is doubling down right now. He had an initial ask for $12 billion, which is attached to that Ukraine funding. And just within the last 24 hours, he's now increased it by another $4 billion to say, look, we need $16 billion for FEMA. But there's been no movement or at least um, a kind of physical movement uh, on seeing whether or not that Ukraine rider is going to be detached. And I mean, this comes as U.S. Congress is actively looking towards a potential government shutdown as they look for other funding to try to keep America rolling. So there's a big dollar and cents fight happening in the halls of Congress led by uh, the president right now. And it's unclear, you know, whether FEMA is going to get its money or even the U.S. government is going to get the money that it's looking for. All right. So we'll wait and see. And again, like you said, the president going to be in that area tomorrow. Let's talk about what's happening in the courts and Donald Trump and the latest with his skipping the arraignment and also wanting his case is that he wants his case kind of severed from the others. Yeah, he does want it severed. And that's because he says he doesn't want a speedy trial. His lawyers say they don't have enough time to go through this trove of information from this two and a half year investigation to be able to be ready to go to court in October. We have to wait to see if if a judge is going to approve that that separation uh, from everybody else who is looking for a speedy trial, which includes some of the lawyers who were part of this alleged scheme to keep Trump in power. But Trump himself yesterday Uh, filing a a motion saying that he, number one, pleads not guilty to all charges. And that's not surprising. He's pleaded not guilty many times in the past, but also that he will be waiving his right to uh, be in court. He's done that. Rudy Giuliani has waived his right to be in court. Um, You know, that's something that they're allowed to do. But the takeaway from that is Donald Trump is pleading not guilty and now looking for a delay tactic to keep this from going to trial anytime soon. And when you talk about Rudy Giuliani, there are stories out today, as again, talking about some troubles with his finances. 
Sure. I mean, he's got big financial troubles. He's gone to the pre- former president in the past saying, look, I need you to pony up some of the money that I have to shell out right now for carrying out tasks that were originally kind of led in part allegedly by you. And here he was uh, essentially losing in Georgia court on a civil case uh, linked to um, you know, threats and harassment of election workers. And the reason that he's lost this case is because he can't afford to keep going into the system and paying the system to get the information and documents that he would need to present as um, as a defendant. You know, he's rough paying out something like $20,000 a month in hosting fees to get access to those records, and he can't do it anymore. And his lawyers say, look, this is not him admitting wrongdoing. This is him saying that he simply doesn't have the money to do this anymore. Problem is, Rudy Giuliani has just several court cases that he is going to be fighting over the next couple of months. Um, and if, if his financial you know, woes get any worse, that could make it even more difficult for him to, to retain his counsel and keep pushing forward. All right. Well, there are so many other stories that we didn't get to. Well, so much happening. But Reggie, we'll have to leave it there for today. As always, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you ever met or communicated with a narcissist? What actually is narcissism? Show contributor Scott Chance spoke with University of Pittsburgh professor of psychology Aidan Wright to find out more about what is likely more complicated than many think. Take a listen to that exchange. We're talking this morning about um, narcissism because I feel like that's a term that kind of gets thrown around at least at least I feel like I hear it in in various circles and we we sort of just apply it to anyone that I think we feel is kind of like selfish or conceited or any of those type of things but I think it is a lot more behind uh, the term or a lot more to this conversation so can we just start right there uh, professor Wright what is narcissism right well I think it's worth uh, starting to differentiate between something that might be more of a clinical construct or a clinical manifestation of narcissism where it becomes uh, impair- you know becomes so extreme or significant for the individual that it becomes impairing versus sort of more run of the mill type of things that you're talking about that are you know might fall under people being arrogant or conceited like like you said which in many respects do capture important parts of how narcissism manifests but by themselves are not sort of the, the, the whole enchilada. They, they aren't by themselves fully what we might think of in terms of narcissism as a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist. One thing I think it's worth talking about or emphasizing is that it's normal for people to have motives to maintain self-esteem, and they do that through a variety of self and emotional and interpersonal regulatory processes, things that they do to help maintain their self-esteem, help feel themselves feel good about themselves. Um, and, and, and that's, that's really basic and normal and something that most or all humans do to some degree. And underlying that are normal needs for validation and recognition from others in the social environment. So when I think about narcissism that goes beyond that, I think of something that is not just that basic normal process of, of normal social functioning, maintaining normal self-esteem and the like. And I really start thinking about impairments in those basic processes and how someone maintains their sense of self, their uh, self-esteem, um, and uh, the impairments might come up in how they regulate their emotions and their interpersonal behavior. 
and it might manifest in terms of being sort of overly invested in things, um, being uh, engaging in maladaptive or compensatory self-enhancement strategies or holding very self-serving and biased beliefs about themselves or being unwilling to engage in sort of what I would call mutual interpersonal relationships where you not only care about what you get out of the relationship, but you're mindful of and paying attention to what the other person gets out of the, the, the relationship. What do you think that we get wrong about narcissism? Yeah, um, th- that's a good, that is a good way to frame it. And one thing I would say, though, is that all the best research to date shows that this stuff exists on a spectrum or a dimension, mm-hmm. meaning that um, it's possible for people to have it a little bit as opposed to having it uh, a lot and, and everything in between. Um, and so it, I think one thing to, to recognize is there isn't just narcissists and non-narcissists out in the world. There are, um, there are sort of fine gradations of it, and, and that's what our best research shows. And so narcissism is not people just being very assertive or um, even being self-promoting or being to some degree self-focused. To me, it really is about what happens when their needs are not being met or they are challenged in some way. Are they able to adjust? Are they, are they able to, to shift? Are they able to make, um, you know, make do with uh, something that, that, that doesn't quite fit their expectations? What's the best way to kind of deal with this? Like say, and maybe this can apply to both cases, to people who actually are narcissists and people who aren't or both ends of the spectrum. How, like how do you deal with that when you run up against like a boss or a partner in a relationship or those type of things who's displaying some of these qualities? Yeah, assuming you're not able to just quit your job or right, find yeah. a new partner right away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one thing is to hold in mind what what they're going to want or going to expect or need out of a relationship. Um, and so I think if you try to challenge the, their expectations and, uh, and, and needs directly, it's more likely to create friction. It's more likely than with other people to create conflict. Um, and so in those cases, I think, you know, if you, if you, if it really is about avoiding conflict or having them have a strong reaction, realistically, you, you want to play up, uh, and, and give them feedback that they are going to want to hear. Um, if they have to, if you have to give them feedback that they, that is something that they do not want to hear, you might want to start by first validating, acknowledging, uh, you know, Maybe there are pluses before you just start discussing their minuses, um, emphasizing uh, aspects of them that are desirable if you want to talk about aspects before you talk about aspects that are undesirable. In other words, you, you want to be really mindful about how you deliver that feedback. Aiden Wright is an adjunct professor of psychology at the Department of Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh, sharing some thoughts on narcissism, how to recognize it, and also how to deal with it. Thanks so much for your time today, Professor Wright. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Yesterday on the program, we were talking about a teacher's shortage in this province. The BC Teachers Federation joining the show saying it's unclear at this point how many teachers are needed, but definitely there is a shortage and has been for several years. That also got us to thinking about funding challenges and specifically in the Surrey School District. Some concerns there about staffing programs, the allocation of funds when we're talking about portables, rising enrollment and joining us to talk about all of this is Gary Timischuk, Vice Chair of the Surrey Board of Education. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be here. Uh, There have been some concerns raised about the number of portables, and I know portables have been used at many Surrey schools and how that's uh, kind of dealing with rising enrollment and dealing with funding. What does it look like as we're going into this school year with portables and funding for the Surrey School Board? Well, as you know, uh, with the first day of school just around the corner, we never really know how many new students are going to show up. However, at this point in time, we're anticipating certainly over 2,000 compared to last September. So we know there's going to be uh, many more students coming in. We had 360 portables in use at the end of last school year. Uh, With that kind of an increase in the student population, we're going to need some more. We're just in the process now of relocating and making sure we've got portables on the right sites. And so a lot of movement has been going on over the last couple of weeks and will continue probably for the next month. And how how does that work into the budget as far as paying for getting more and, and getting those portables onto those various sites? Well, that's certainly been a thorn in our side at our board because the uh, provincial government does not provide any funding whatsoever for the portables. So the initial uh, acquisition of the portables or the relocation that may occur, like I mentioned, that's happening right now. And that's significant dollars. Uh, Just this year alone, just to move those portables around uh, over the last month and in the next, uh, you know, three, four weeks is going to cost us in the neighborhood of $5 million dollars. And that's money that uh, should rightfully be spent on uh, on staffing, so teachers, to make sure that it provides that education for the students. So it is a problem for us, for sure. The uh, BC government just sent out uh, a news release earlier this week about Surrey, uh, talking about all of the great news, the construction that has been completed and that's underway for schools specifically in Surrey, and talked about how great it is that there are, are more seats. Is is that true of the situation, or is that perhaps focusing on, yes, there has been progress at a number of schools, but there still are a lot of issues with space and with funding? Well, exactly. It's a a yeah-but scenario. Absolutely. The provincial government, make no mistake, has provided a lot of funding in our school district, and uh, we've built a lot of new schools and and had a lot of additions to existing schools. However, uh, the growth in our district is far surpassing uh, that uh, growth of the new uh, spaces being provided by the provincial government. So it's kind of like taking uh, one step forward and two back. And so we still need more portables, and we still need many more additions and many more uh, schools Uh, to meet the needs of our district. And what about the number of teachers? And I know it's it can be difficult to get a, a grasp on just how many vacancies there are and how many teachers are needed. Uh, the BC Teachers Federation, uh, the president was on the show yesterday saying that's a question that the ministry needs to answer. But do you know at this point about shortages in Surrey and, and challenges there? Uh, well, of course, as you know, there is a labor shortage across all industries. Uh, it's a bit of a challenge and has been uh, since uh, COVID, I guess. 
Um, teaching is no different here in the province of BC. In Surrey, we're not entirely sure just yet. Um, certainly, there you know we've got the growth uh, that we have to deal with, and that's going to require a large number of new teachers. However, we do have a fairly large uh, TTOC, so the teacher on call. Uh, pool. Uh, we've got probably about 1,500 teachers in that pool right now, and that's the first place we'd go to uh, offer positions if we had some full-time opportunities throughout the district. I think we should be able to fill most of the positions that will become available over the coming weeks once we see how many new students we have. Um, but there's always we do have a very robust uh, recruitment uh, program ongoing all the time, and uh, every time you know teachers are withdrawn from that TTOC pool. We make sure that we're recruiting new ones to put in there. And how long do you think until we'll know exactly? Because I think that always comes as a bit of a surprise to people that here we are just days away from the school year starting and those numbers are still kind of up in the air. We don't know the exact numbers of how many teachers are needed and, and the number of students and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's normal. I mean, uh, typically a lot of families will relocate through the summer, so maybe they're selling or uh, in one community and moving to another. So you never really know what's happening in terms of the general population. We know how many students we had at the end of the last school year, so we can carry that forward, but we just don't know yet about all those people who may not be returning to their school they were in last year or, re- or enrolling in a new school in their uh, neighborhood. That will start, of course, on Tuesday when the kids start heading back into school and will probably take up the better part of next week. So by next Friday, we should have a pretty good idea of how many students we'll need. And then it's formula-driven, quite frankly, in terms of how many teachers we need. And we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Our staff will be busy crunching those numbers. Are you confident that uh, going back to the portables and like you said, the, the relocating and making sure those are where they are needed the most, are you confident that's going to be done and uh, done in time for the start of the school year? Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, the portables, it takes time, obviously, too, especially in the relocation. You've got to pick the, uh, and it's a large item, as you know, to pick it up, put it on a truck and uh, relocate it to a new school. Uh, we've done uh, we've done about 30 of the portable moves required so far, and we've got somewhere between 15 and 20 left. So I would anticipate that that should be done within the next couple of weeks. But to answer your question about will we be ready for the kids and for the uh, teachers, um, yes, in most cases, there may be a little bit of a waiting time and we'll accommodate them inside the existing school until such time as that portable is ready for them. And uh, with the funding as well, that, that must be difficult, like you said, also with not getting actual provincial funding for the things like moving portables and new portables, when clearly, uh, for, for now at least, even with all the work being done, these are necessary in the Surrey School District. Well, we can't do without uh, the portables, uh, no doubt, and, and it is a challenge for us uh, at budget time. As you can appreciate, we've uh, built our budget. We did that uh, last May. It was finalized, and we built it with the anticipation of a number of new students. So we've already accommodated for that. However, again, the reality is that when you're spending millions of dollars on portable purchases and relocations, that's money that's coming essentially right out of the classroom and uh, in the teaching component. Right, money that could be spent, because I know we've talked about the teacher shortage, but I'm guessing that Surrey isn't different from other districts in that uh, other uh, special assistants and other positions, uh, we've seen shortages right across the board in those as well. Absolutely, and and we would love to be able to take that $5 million plus and, and put it into the classroom and provide the services uh, to make sure that children get the best possible education they can. Well, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time today and for bringing us up to date on what's happening in Surrey. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, we have been watching the wildfire activity in B.C. We know the government has spent more than half a billion dollars already on fire suppression efforts for this year's wildfire season. That price is expected to increase as the concern also grows. So is there anything we can do in our communities to make them more ecologically sustainable? And what does that mean? What does that look like? Joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Jenny Moore, Director of of sustainability at BCIT. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Well, I know you have worked in many different ways, many different departments, a former advisor to the UN, looking at kind of how this impacts communities and cities around the world, as well as right here in BC. What are you focusing on? Then when we talk about sustainability and being ecologically sustainable, what does that actually mean? I'm glad you asked that. It's a great question. First and foremost, in order for us to be ecologically sustainable, we have to operate all of our human activities, including our global economy, within the ecological parameters that sustain all life. And we haven't been doing that for many decades. And the question might be, well, how can that be? It's because we've been drawing down all of the natural ecological systems that have been built up for millennia and millennia and millennia. And since the Industrial Revolution, we've pretty much drawn most of that down in the last 200, 300 years. So it's quite phenomenal. But our lifetimes are so short. And you can think about from the time you were born till now, all the new technologies we've had. So many things have changed. It's hard to imagine that humans can have that big a global impact. But that's what's happening. What do you mean we've been drawing down on it or that, that we've drawn down on, on all of those, th- those areas? Yeah. So what drawing down our natural capital means is when we dig up fossil fuels and burn it, those are ancient um, dinosaurs or old biological life form that's been compressing for millions of years. When we harvest old growth forests, those are big established ecosystems that have been functioning for many years. Same with the Amazonian rainforests. Our oceans, actually most people don't realize, produce a lot of our oxygen and they have been absorbing a lot of the carbon that we've been putting in the atmosphere for the last couple of centuries. So these are the capacities or sinks that we've, that we've taken advantage of. And because when we started our adventure as an industrialized society, these resources were infinite and abundant. So we just assumed that they would always be there for us. And now we realize that actually that's the waste sinks that are filling up faster than our ability to mitigate those wastes. And that's, that's a real challenge. And that's what climate change is. It's a carbon waste sink challenge. And so when we look at what we can do as, uh, say, an individual or a community or even as a city, if we're not looking at that, the bigger picture of every country and what other countries are doing, is it really possible then to be doing something at that level and it makes a difference? It's always possible to be doing something at the individual level and we need to be doing it simultaneously we need to be doing stuff at the global level and those things go hand in hand. So you've heard this before, but number one, if you're concerned about these issues, do get involved and understand what the political parties that you vote for who lead our country are, are um, what their platforms are. Many of us have had the luxury of not worrying about that and we've been asleep at the wheel for a long time on this file. I think everyone now is quite alarmed and quite worried. Unfortunately, the impacts we're experiencing now are from emissions that we threw into the atmosphere several decades in the past. So things are going to get quite a bit worse before they get better. But if we don't start acting now, they're never going to get better. 
So in our own lives, thinking about how we reduce emissions from driving, eating uh, high-protein foods like red meat, many of these things, uh, consuming disposable products, things that can't be fixed. Unfortunately, our economy is geared towards undervaluing the true ecological and social costs of our activities. So as we continue to grow our economy, we continue to grow our problems around more ecological uh, impacts, more climate change. We need to improve our economy, which is different from growing it. Improving it means actually factoring in these costs. Same thing for our cities. Our cities were built with this assumption of infinite oil. So we have sprawling cities. When we think about what an ecological city looks like, it's massively much more compact. The shopping malls that are coming up with the high-rise towers where people can work, live, play in one seven-block area, for example, where it's so compact you don't need a car, that's getting to the level of eco-city we need, a factor 10 reduction in our energy and materials consumption. And when we talk about things that we're doing, though, and even if we look to what government, different government levels are doing, I'll use the example of banning plastic straws. I mean, it sounds great. I'm not sure it's actually going to do anything in the bigger picture. Are we focused on the right things or are we stuck on doing things that look like we're making a difference? Oh, what a great question. Yes, I think we're focused on the wrong things. It's not to say that these aren't important. They're all important. They're all um, making incremental changes. But we need big radical shifts. And the number one biggest innovation we can make is to really sit down and rethink what are the true ecological costs of our activities today? And how do we begin to incorporate those costs into our economic transactions? We have all lived a great life by undervaluing those ecological, um, what I talked about before, those natural capital resources, which built up over millennia. Now that party is coming to an end and very quickly. So the biggest single innovation we can make is to start thinking about what our economic system is telling us about what these things are worth. Like if disposable straws or disposable anything uh, is cheap, it's because it's, it's letting nature take the waste sink responsibilities. We're not taking responsibility. So in the future, we're going to go a lot more. We need to go a lot more to fix, repair, use durable goods that last for a very long time. Um, these are the big government shifts, big business shifts that we as individuals often feel disempowered to make. But together, when we vote, when we're educated, when we start to use our intelligence to shop differently, that's where we're going to see big shifts. Even something like that, and this has come up many times in that as a consumer, say, appliances used to be built to last 10, 20 years. They're not built that way anymore. Is that something that even, so as a consumer, is it demanding change? Is it demanding that companies go back to doing that? A hundred percent. Yes. Like we have created so many false obsolescences in our system in order to drive more throughput but more throughput means more energy more materials are getting used even though we're innovating for efficiency all those efficiency gains are being lost on the designed obsolescence side of the equation right like yes a hundred percent we know how to make things and use we already know how to do things with 75 percent less energy materials in our economy when we bump into the challenge of but it It's not cost effective to do that. As soon as you hear that word, you know that we as a society have undervalued what the real ecological and social costs are. 
because right now our economy is not telling the truth about that. So if it's cheaper to be disposable, that's the lie that we need to stop telling ourselves because at the end of the day, climate change doesn't care what we chose as the price. It's telling us what the real price is. All right, Jenny Moore, we'll have to leave it there for today, but appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.